Good morning. It's so nice. I love coming to speak at universities. Um, like Marina said, I'm a futurist. What does that really mean? Um, well, in the like, 23, 24 years that I've been working, I've been focused on looking at technology and humanity and how it impacts society and really what changes are coming in the world. So I call some of these things signals of change. I look at some of the trends that are happening across a number of different uh, technological disciplines. This presentation is the summary of my annual report, which is 2018, the year of radical creativity. Um, the actual report, and I'll make sure you get a link to that. The, the report will actually be, uh, it's about 300 pages long, and it's stacked full of information, but this is the Coles notes, but it's still really long and really intense. I'll make sure that you get this presentation. I'll make sure you get that report as well. Um, we're going to leave a little bit of space for Q&A at the end. Um, so think about some really hard questions, because other people at other universities ask me really tough questions. And uh, I generally can't be stumped, but have a good go, OK? Are we ready? Yep. One person's ready. Um, so this is where I started. If you go to Silicon Valley and you, and you speak to the large companies down there, it's about moonshots and the big ideas that are going to change billions of people's lives, right? Well, I'm going to call it out and say that these moonshot ideas or these, these things that we're aiming towards are kind of bullshit. The idea of creating such a huge, grandiose uh, target is good from a dreaming perspective, but it's not particularly effective from a doing perspective. Certainly not for lots of companies that don't have billions of dollars. So I kind of call bullshit on this because, hey, you know, do we really want to live forever? Do we really want to get everyone on the internet? Do we really want to colonize Mars? Who, who, wants, to, who wants to actually move to Mars in the room? Uh, no, no, it's okay, you can put your hand up, it's fine. If you really want to move to Mars, think about moving to the South Pole and living in like a, a climate-controlled tent with a bunch of people that you might not like forever. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I sort of call it out in terms of these moonshots because, you know, the grandiose thing here, it does drive us forward and it is useful, but sometimes it can go horribly wrong. Um, Google actually set this up. They, they did the X Prize um, back in the day with Peter Diamandis. Um, he, he set up the X Prize to, so you could send a reusable spaceship into space like twice in the 48 hours. It's hugely important. You know, it is a moonshot, but it's not as big as say, oh, let's send, uh, let's send a, a moon rover to the moon from, the, from, from wherever in the world, get it to drive 500 meters and send back high definition pictures. But that's what this prize was all about. What actually happened with, with this was uh, they actually canceled it because it was, uh, nobody could manage the Google moonshot prize and actually get to the moon. It's too expensive and too far away. It was just too difficult, right? If you actually remember during the Cold War, like NASA and the American administration and then the Russians were head-to-head -head in the Cold War battle to actually land someone on the moon. And really, it, it almost bankrupted both countries in terms of like their space bones. I think it actually did throw Russia into a really bad place as well, right? So moonshots are a good idea if you want to dream. They're a bad idea if you want to do. This presentation is about people that do things through radically creative thinking. You know, why aren't we thinking about the grassroots? Why aren't we thinking about the change that we can make in our cities and our countries? So that brings me into this concept of radical creativity. Now, radical creativity is the mashup of things like exponential technologies, which I'll talk about here, consumer behavior, academia, scientific discoveries, cultural changes, policy and standard reform, and community. 
And you wrap that up in a culture of experimentation, execution, and open sharing. And suddenly, you've got the ability to actually drive all the thinking forward, to actually achieve some of these bigger ideas, but on a smaller grassroots level. right? But when I talk about this, what technologies are really the most essential in 2018? And this is where we get into eight areas of technology that I talk about. Now, I, I've expanded this over the years, and I think that these eight areas of technology are going to be the most important for you to understand will change the world and to understand in the context of modern business as well. Right, let's see if you uh, sort of agree with some of these. But what's really interesting about technology, before I, I, I jump straight in, is understanding that it's not actually technology that drives the change, right? It's our collective response to the technology. And, and Paul Sappho, is a, a really bright professor down at Stanford, talks about this cultural change. Virtual reality, for example, it was around 30 years ago, and now it's in your pockets, right, in all of your smartphones. Like the impact there, electric vehicles, for example. They were already doing them 30 years ago. In fact, they were already doing electric vehicles. Henry Ford's wife drove an electric vehicle. Um, so, you know, it does take a long time. And it, yes, some of that's technology, but a lot of it's cultural appropriation, right? But the first one's about data. Basically, data is an unlimited resource. We're going to be generating so much data by 2025 that we're not going to know what to do with 99% of it. We're going to be generating about 163 zettabytes of data per year by 2025. That's uh, the equivalent of a billion billion uh, high-definition movies right, per year. And we're only going to be able to use about 1% for anything useful. And this is why we need data. Data is the foundation for our understanding and our decision-making. And then we transfer that into a form of information. That information then gets discussed and put into a form around knowledge. Here's our knowledge base. But really... Wisdom is the thing that we're trying to get to. And that's why we're here learning, that's why we're, we're learning from each other, and that's why we're trying to solve problems in the world, that wisdom, that leads us to real-world decision-making. Okay, then on into uh, autonomous worlds, artificial intelligence. So Andrew Ng uh, used to be the chief science officer of Baidu. He was the guy that founded Coursera. Coursera was founded on the idea of... Uh, getting artificial intelligence courses, ironically enough, out into the world. And Andrew Ng says, artificial intelligence is the new electricity. It's that pivotal moment in history that everything changes. In the early 1900s, when electricity came online for everyone, everything changed for us, right? You couldn't imagine life without electricity. Now, within a few years, you're not going to be able to imagine life without artificial intelligence. So this is what artificial intelligence does. It's a simplistic way of looking at it. In the data model of data, information, knowledge, and wisdom, AI gets all the, the drudge work out of the way, right? So data, information, knowledge, it, it can do that all automatically, collecting from all the sources and trying to infer meaning in, that, in those data sets, and then passes it along to you and says, hey, make some more sense out of this. Use your wisdom. And that's where we come in. So what's really interesting about artificial intelligence, a lot of people are saying it's going to destroy the economy, it's going to take away jobs and whatever. It's just going to change things, and it's going to change the way that we work. But what's really fascinating is it's going to have a huge economic impact on the world. They actually think that it's going to provide a $15.7 trillion boost to GDP worldwide. And it's interesting how it's split as well. Labor productivity improvements about $6.6 .6 and increased consumer demand $9.1 
So we're going to want more things out of this economy that's driven by artificial intelligence. We're also going to change how we become productive as humans. Because we're pretty terrible at being productive, right? We don't need people in the front of McDonald's like taking orders. We don't. Let's hope that you never do that, because you won't have that job for very long. Okay, so I talk about human and the machine. It's about redeployment, not unemployment. It's about augmenting ourselves. Suddenly, if you've got access to all this processing capability of more data sources than you've ever had before, you become almost superhuman in a way. And that superhumanity is going to be the way that we operate going forward. The, the, the third thing that I talk about is the Internet of Everythings, or you might have heard the Internet of Everything, um, also known as like the fourth industrial revolution, cyber-physical systems. The, the idea that everything's got a sensor in it, it collects data, it reports it back, you can basically use that for decision-making, and you might even have systems that are driven by artificial intelligence automating entire factory um, manufacturing lines. So it's, it's a really important thing to understand that this is going to be the, be the eyes and the ears of the world all around us, in cities, in factories, in schools, in this classroom. And the installed devices by sector is going to be huge, even in the home. Does anyone have an Amazon Alexa here? Yeah? Okay. Marina does. Um, but you're all going to have more of that going forward, right? Um, but yeah, about, up to about 25 billion installed sensors by 2025, 2024. It's a pretty interesting world. We're being watched more than ever, right? Then I get really excited about this next subject, abundant energy. And uh, later on, I'm going to go into specific industries where these sort of intersect. Now, I travel a lot to Alberta and I speak on energy. I'm not particularly popular in Alberta, and this is why. Modern business is going to be determined, the winners of modern business are going to be determined. If you own a clean, sustainable energy supply, storage and distribution, then you own that modern business landscape. Why do you think that places like Facebook and Google and these large tech companies are creating you know, carbon neutral, 100% renewable energy um, data centers and working on battery technology? And they're going to control everything, right? Independently. Uh, Jeremy Rifkin, uh, who, I, who I chatted to last week, says that the sun never sends you an invoice, right? I really like that, that thought as well. But, you know, with fossil fuels, it's waning. They actually think by 2030, it's going to be about $10 a barrel for oil. Um, now, there's a lot of trends coming in to actually reduce down the amount of oil that's going to be burnt in the world. We have to make a change, as the world's going to be irreparably damaged. As some people say it's already irreparably damaged. But the, the cost of solar's dipped exponentially. And the amount of installations has gone up exponentially as well. So we're actually at this point where you know, oil will be on its way out a lot quicker in the future. But like the, the amount of installations, the way that we can actually generate electricity is becoming more ubiquitous. It's, it's everywhere. And then for the first time at the beginning of last year, it was actually found that two different funds, one was for fossil fuels, that's the one at the bottom, and one was for clean energy, that's the one at the top here, um, actually diverged. And for the first time, the fossil fuel ones started to dip. You even had one of the board members of, of uh, I think it was Chevron most recently, actually came out and, and, and made a tweet about, oh, maybe there is something in the fact that renewables is raising and fossil fuels is dipping. Um, that tweet disappeared about 10 minutes after that. I'm sure it was a good day for PR in that company. But really, like, clean energy 
is the thing that people are bullish about, the thing that's really going to redefine what the world is. Okay. Decentralization. A lot of people have said, oh, are you going to talk about Bitcoin? Are you going to talk about cryptocurrency? Are you going to talk about the blockchain? A little bit. Not a lot. But blockchain's super important. Like, this part of the presentation to me is like me talking about TCP IP and the internet. It's a backbone, it's a protocol, it's a way that it works. It's not very interesting. What is interesting is what you put on top of it, right? So, for example, Bitcoin is on top of, uh, you know, the blockchain, which is really interesting from, uh, you know, banking the unbanked, um, having a different level of investment in, in, in something that's unsecuritized but actually has got scarcity and, and it's like a monetary system, right? Who's got Bitcoin in the room? Oh dear. Yeah, really? Okay. Um, <laughs> it's kind of interesting. Yeah, I never suggest getting into crypto, but I've got some. Okay. Uh, but what's really interesting um, is that the blockchain is a software protocol that it provides secure encrypted uh, network and it's got decentralized and open ledger that allows for anonymity. It's an accounting system. That can be used for so many different things, right? Imagine, um, for example, Swift payments across borders, right? That system's 44 years old. And now you've got new blockchain-based uh, systems like Ripple and whatever that can do cross-border payments uh, with little friction and, and almost zero cost. And it's going to put this old technology out of the way, disruption. This is going to probably be one of the most disruptive technologies in the future, just for the backbone of the world. And there's lots of people working in capital liquidity, middleware, protocols and infrastructure. Get away from thinking about Bitcoin, get back into thinking about blockchain. And actually, a lot of people are expected to adopt that. Once it starts getting into the backbone systems, and you'll see that coming in banks and credit card systems and, and the such like first, you're going to see it everywhere. You know, any time that you sign an agreement, that's going to go on the blockchain. You buy a property, that, that, that data record is going to be stored on the blockchain. It means that you no longer have to store a centralized version of that. It's distributed. So there's nothing to be hacked and there's nothing to be removed, except for the exchanges. And you've got to be really careful about what exchanges you use. Okay. And then into open medicine. I think medicine is probably one of the, the biggest areas that will be impacted. Um, you know, we care very deeply about human health. It's been invested in um, a, a great deal over time. But really, I sort of say that waiting rooms are dead. You know, the doctors that we see today are not necessarily going to exist in the same form going forward. Um, I love this quote by Dr. Derek Topol. Go and watch some videos of this guy. When I went to a medical school, the term digital applied only to rectal exams. Now, this is an, old, this is an older doctor, and, and he actually travels the world and, and extols the virtues of what it means to use digital and platforms. You can have a, a, a mobile phone now that you can measure your heart rate on. You can have add-on devices to that, that mobile phone that suddenly turns it into all sorts of different medical devices as well. There's been a lot of research in that area. In fact, this, is, this comes out of an X-Prize for the Tricorder Challenge. Do you remember in Star Trek? Like Bones runs up and scans... Someone, what's wrong with them? Well, they actually uh, built this system. It diagnosed about 14, 15 different conditions using a mobile device that you can just buy out of a store. It's pretty great, and it's a huge leap ahead. Um, this, is a, this is actually a, a cut from the film Ender's Game, but this is actually a, a cranial um, surgical robot, and it's real. It does exist. 
But we're in this future world of robotic surgery. In fact, a lot of the graduate surgeons in the US now, about three quarters, are actually struggling to get employment because robotic surgery is so prevalent. And the doctors in charge of these are keeping it to themselves, right? Hands up who'd actually be operated on by a, by a robot. Right, so everyone with their hands down would rather have the shaky hands of a human. Good luck. Right. And then medical research is getting super interesting as well. You can actually edit DNA using CRISPR-Cas9, and you can fix congenital diseases. Now, it's still in the lab, but in China, they've already been doing it on humans, and they've noticed some improvements. It's not conclusive yet, but in the future, you'll be able to solve problems that are congenital through the use of therapies like CRISPR-Cas9. And it's been around for a long time, about 30 years, and it's just becoming of age. Okay. And these last two of, of the eight exponential eight pieces of technology that I talk about a lot are getting really, really into the realms of the future future somewhat. So nanotechnology. So great, a great professor, Richard Feynman, said, I want to build a billion tiny factories, models of each other, which are manufacturing simultaneously. The principles of physics, as far as I can see, do not speak against the possibility of maneuvering things atom by atom. It's the idea that you can manufacture at the atomic scale and actually build machines at such a small size that they can be used for, other, for applications that we've never thought about before. So this was done by the University of Alberta. This is a, this is a maple leaf. That was, uh, that was put together for Canada 150 that's 10 nanometers wide. How big is 10 nanometers? Well, you can fit 10,000 of them across the width of a human hair, which is 100,000 nanometers wide. 10,000 of these? Imagine what you can do with, with tiny machines that can be manufactured at, at this scale. And you, you can operate literally at the cell level, right? And that's exactly what people are uh, experimenting with. So there's some technology uh, that, that's really just in the laboratory and, and using uh, fish and pig uh, uh, cell organisms that have got cancer in them. And you can activate some nanorobotics that go in and at a certain frequency of light, they destroy cancer. So imagine if you've got cancer, you've been diagnosed and you can walk into the hospital in the future and someone injects you and then you might go under a certain frequency of life that's probably safe for you. And, you know, 24 hours later, the cancer in your body's been killed by machines. That's a huge leap ahead. Another huge leap ahead is around quantum computing. Now, this is the part of the presentation where I put my hand up and say, I'm not a quantum physicist. I will talk about these concepts in a very high, high level. Anyone watching the video of this presentation will probably um, put anything in, in, in the, in the uh, sort of comments below and start to rip it apart, but I'll keep it simple. Quantum computing is a distinctly new way of harnessing nature. It will be the first technology that allows useful tasks to be formed in collaboration between parallel universes. Now, if you've got a normal computer that operates as a class, with classical bits, zero and one, it can be one or the other, and a combination of those bits means instructions, those instructions turn into computer programs, and that runs the computers that we have in the world. Well, qubits, or quantum bits, actually operate in a completely different way, where they can be zero, and one, zero or one, or any position in between all of them, all the same thing at any point in time. So you actually create a solution space 
that's got a, a number of probabilistic outcomes, and it can use a number of algorithms that actually determine the, the final answer infinitely quicker than traditional computing. So here's one example. And we've got, we've got a hackers conference downstairs, so I find this kind of interesting. So say if you've got a password. A conventional way of guessing what the password is is look at every single machination of what that password could be. And then after 1,000 years, here's your answer. Right? Sure, you might stumble across the answer earlier on, but if you've got really strong passwords, which I hope that you do, it's going to take a long, long time. With quantum computing, you'll be able to look um, using superposition across the entire um, possible space of combinations of, of those password constructs and then look at all the sequences and then use entanglement and other quantum effects to then use probabilistic theory to like, really narrow it down and within a couple of seconds break it. So here, here, here comes the problem. And this is why banks and a number of other organizations are actually investing in quantum encryption. Because all encryption will be broken immediately by, by a, a quantum computer that finally reaches that state of quantum supremacy, the ability to process and, and completely surpass what traditional computing can do. And this is super useful, not just for encryption, but also for, for chemistry as well. If you imagine a chemical reaction from step one to step two, scientists are now thinking that we're going to be able to understand all of the quantum reactions between step one and step two like we've never done before which once we understand that we've got more knowledge in, in chemistry and we can understand infinitely what happens at each stages, you've got multiple branches that kick off in between and you've got an entirely new discipline of chemistry. So what does that mean? That means that we can do more in the medical space, nanotechnology plays a role because the, these machines operate at a nanoscale level with, with certain moving parts of it. Okay. So they're the eight areas of technology that I talk about. And I just dipped into them really, really quickly, so you probably sat there a little bit shocked. But to give us some context, I talk about things called signals of change. Now, you can walk around the streets of wherever you are and see change happening before you. The changes that happen in transportation systems, banking systems, retail, and a number of different areas. And I'm going to jump into these. And I'm going to go back to energy and climate change. Now... We really underestimate the changes that are coming with renewable energy. In fact, back in 2016, the, the Department of Energy in the US um, had a 10-year prediction error of 4,800% on solar capacity. I imagine on that day someone lost their job in the Department of Energy. But they also screwed up about wind and solar, actual wind capacity on its own. You know, you're out by hundreds of percent. So the change is coming, and it's coming quicker than anyone can expect. And it's being driven by a lot of different people. Even administrations, like, say, down in America, that are trying to halt this, they can't. It's a juggernaut. And when you look at some of the stats, and you realize that only 2% of, uh, of the Earth's like, wind capacity needs to be captured to, to power the entire Earth, you understand what we can do with this, right? If we can build enough you know, um, <laughs> wind turbines, we could potentially power the earth. And then solar panels, and then hydro. We're really lucky where we live with hydro, right? And what's interesting now is people like the World Bank are saying that they'll no longer invest in fossil fuels-based exploration after 2019. It's over. The world of fossil fuels, oil and gas, is over. And it leads us to this world. This is a vision of what the world could look like if you've got unlimited renewable energy networks, 
that cross boundaries, that can power the world in a way that, that's around sharing of energy, right? unlimited energy, where all of us as individuals have even got homes that have got our own solar panels that are feeding back into the grid. It's completely decentralized power grids in the world. And we've got an ability to, to power the world in a way that, that's, that's cheap and affordable. And that helps move the world forward a lot more quickly. But there's some really radical thinking. Coming back to the idea of radical creativity, I've got this idea, let me learn from you, let me do that. This is actually, uh, <laughs> this is an evaporation engine from Columbia University. This uses literally sticky tape and plastic and spores to uh, harness evaporation from, from a water source. So the world's covered by about 71% water. Imagine if we could capture a percentage of that evaporation and we could power electricity that way. This is only on a small scale. They can actually do it so it powers a light bulb right now. But as we know with all technologies, over time, these ideas will feed into something else. But, oh, suddenly we can have evaporation machines. That's a whole new discipline. That's interesting. This is in Jian in China. They realized that they had a terrible smog problem. And they realized that, oh, if we can clean rooms air, you know, using the air filters, why don't we just build a massive one for the city? So that's exactly what they did. So in Jean, they've got this. It's about 150 meters high, and it cleans the city's air, and it does a pretty good job of it. It drags the bad, you know, bad smoke and CO2 out of the air. That's pretty cool, huh? This is in Iceland. This is a company called Climeworks. This actually draws CO2 out of the air and turns it into rock. It does it on a small scale. Now, this, these last two are really important because... Even with all the changes that we make as part of the Paris Accord and that agreement, it's not enough to save the Earth. We have to draw CO2 out of the, the Earth's atmosphere. We have to. So there's a huge amount of energy being put into this. Excuse the pun. But this is going to be the future, dragging CO2 out of the air. And then it gets a bit funky. So this is Mount Pinatubo. In 1991, it erupted. It put 27 million tons of sulfur dioxide into the air. It was so much that it filled the atmosphere um, in part, and it reduced the temperature of the Earth by one degree for two years. So scientists thought, oh, here's a radical idea. Why don't we spray aerosols that are safe into the atmosphere to help lower the temperature? Now, a good friend of mine calls messing with nature like a dance. You can't just go to a certain part of the world and cool down the air in a certain part of the world without expecting that typhoons and other things are going to be created in other parts of the world. There's going to be massive um, biosphere disruption. There could be. But this is what people are trying now. We're kind of at that point. If we don't make these changes in the next like, three or four decades, we're going to be screwed as a human race, right? Okay, that was fun. Okay, the second one, mobility. Transportation. This is, the, uh, this is the, the foundation of a Tesla 3. Did anyone buy a Tesla 3? Normally I go to audiences and there's at least one person, your students, so I, don't ima I imagine that you may not even own a car in the future. <laughs> That's a whole different presentation. Though. But this is a Tesla 3. Batteries, 17 moving parts. An average combustion engine's got 200 moving parts, and it will cost you money every single year to keep it on the road, and it will cost you gas. This will cost you pennies a day to drive, and it will hardly ever break down. You have to replace tires. It doesn't even have brakes in the traditional way. Okay? But what's interesting is Tesla makes 50,000 cars a year. Now, within two years, that'll be 500,000. 
because of the Tesla 3 and the other, the models, uh, that's what they're going to try and do. But now they're the fourth largest automaker by value in the world. They're bigger than Ford by market cap. And why is this? Because people know that electric vehicles are the future and Tesla's ahead of most other people. Most other people have joined the game now. If you actually look at news articles from about even three or four years ago, everyone was in denial about electric vehicles. They're difficult to, you can't get the, 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 the raw materials to build the batteries. It's difficult to manufacture. They're still really expensive. Well, not anymore. In fact, UBS did a study last year where they ripped apart a Jetta and they ripped apart a Chevy Bolt. And they actually worked out that this year would be the year where parity was created. So the same, same spec of car, combustion versus electric vehicle, will cost the same on a forecourt. Now, when you're given a choice, would you walk onto the forecourt and choose the thing that basically destroys the planet that costs money every year to maintain, that costs you in, in gas every month about 100 to $150? Or would you choose the thing that, that costs pennies per day? It doesn't have many moving parts. It's good for the environment, but costs exactly the same, right? It's a no-brainer. This is the tipping point. 2018 is the tipping point. Now, the, the industry building the vehicles just needs to catch up and provide as many as they can. And I've been trying to buy an electric vehicle in the last couple of weeks, and it's really hard to find the range, just the availability of new, newer models. They're, they're just not there yet. But Nissan, Chevy, BMW, Subaru, and Volvo, and Volkswagen have all joined the game. In fact, the, auto, the automotive industry has come together and has pledged together to spend $90 billion in electric vehicle research and production development. Ford doubled their budget in a year. Change is coming. And when I look at change, I look at the, the people that are thinking radically creative. They're like, okay, this is a company called ITAP. They're down in California. They took an old BMW. They retrofitted it with, with batteries and drivetrains and in, uh, an infrastructure and a foundation that they made from 90% renewable uh, and recycled materials. They built it in three months, and then they drove it for 1,000, I think it was 1,024 kilometers over a two-day period. Vehicles don't drive that far in electric vehicles, but this one, this one's done it. We're on that cusp of change. If you start to have vehicles that are like a thousand kilometers on a single charge, which, which is going to be the standard within five years, everyone's going to want an electric vehicle. The, the, the problems of having to stop multiple times as you drive um, from place to place aren't going to be there. In fact, I was at a wedding, and this was 18 months ago, and I had a friend who's got a, a Tesla Model S, and he drove 800 miles. They stopped twice to refuel, which meant uh, a 30-minute recharge on a fast charger, twice. It cost them $5 to drive 800 miles, and they drove to my friend's wedding. It's pretty fascinating stuff, hey? And what, in those 30 minutes, they stopped twice? That's, that's a bathroom break or a burger break or whatever, right? There's no change to your lifestyle. And then you've got self-driving vehicles. Now, self-driving vehicles will maintain a bigger hold on the world than electric vehicles more quickly. So these guys are going to be here. If you, I went down to San Francisco most recently, and there were dozens of different companies building self-driving vehicles, you know, over and above like Google and whatever. This is one company called Voyage. They're in a place called The Villages in Florida. It's a retirement community of about uh, 150 to 200,000 people. They now provide self-driving taxi services. Companies like Lyft and Uber will become obsolete if they don't jump on this model. That's why you're going to see a lot of that about that in the news. 
because we're not going to need humans to drive cars anymore. Certainly not public transport and certainly not taxis. And the automotive industry is sad, but they know the inevitable change is coming. Bob Lutz is the former vice chairman of, uh, of GM. It saddened me to say, but we're approaching the end of automotive era. And it is. Within five years, autonomous passenger modules will be prevalent. They'll be in every car that rolls off the production line, certainly. Um, electric vehicle dominance within 10 years, and by 20 years, human-driven vehicles will be legislated off of highways. Complete change, right? What does that world look like? And these are, the these are going to be the companies that make cars in the future. This is why the automotive industry is scared. These companies got a lot more money than a lot of people in the automotive industry as well, right? It's interesting. I left Tesla off of there on purpose. Tesla is very precipitous. It, 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 yeah, it may not make it. I like saying things like that. <laughs> It'd probably be good, though. They build rockets, too. Okay. Retail. McDonald's, last year, they rolled out to, to a couple of thousand locations um, these new order and pay kiosks in America. On that day, the market was like, this is amazing. McDonald's is all about efficiency. It's like we're going to get rid of people. That means more profits. On that day, it reached the largest market cap it ever had. Its stock price reached uh, the top it had ever been. And uh, per, on a per-store basis, its estimates went up from 2% to 3% increase in revenue. Automation, right? Remove humans from the drudge work. You don't need to be flipping burgers. And then you've got Amazon that have basically created a big sister for your children. Any question that you've got, any service that you need, any song that you want sang, any, any tune you want played off of iTunes or whatever, it can be done by, by your big sister, Alexa. Right? The idea of discovery and learning about the world is all, completely disappeared because you can ask a question and get the answer directly. We're going to become ultimately very stupid because all the information is going to be on hand. And then Amazon goes even further. Down in Seattle, they've just opened their Amazon Go store. You can walk into the store. You can scan your, uh, your Amazon account. And then you can just take things off of the shelf, put it in your bag, and just walk out. They call it just walk out technology. Well, they've, they've got cameras in the roof. They do facial recognition. They've got sensors on the, uh, on the shelves, RFID, a number of other technologies. You can see the patents out there. And what happens is that they actually record all transactions because you're just in store walking around. I actually think that they can also uh, do a level of analysis on your mood when you buy things. So they'll be able to actually work out if you're happy buying that cupcake or not. They'll be able to sell that data potentially. They might not. They might actually use it because they obviously own Whole Foods now, right? In fact, this, this prototype made me think that they were going to buy Whole Foods about a year and a half ago. And a, and a consultancy locally do a retail report. And I told them, they said, no, no, we're not putting that in there. And just before their retail report came out, Amazon bought Whole Foods for $13.7 billion. On the, same day, their, uh, <laughs> on the same day, their stock rose by $14 billion. So it was kind of a, a neutral cost purchase, right? And what's interesting about Amazon buying Whole Foods is um, within three miles of Whole Foods stores, uh, the majority of homes in the US that own over, earn over $100,000 per household. So suddenly, this technology comes in, and it activates your fast thinking. You go in, you make a choice, you walk out with, with your bag. You don't have the slow thinking. 
uh, of just considering it as you as you walk along in the in the aisles. And we'll go, I don't really want that, right? How many times have we done that? I actually think this is going to drive up the uh, the average cost of uh, of a shopping trip to Whole Foods significantly, right? Twenty to thirty percent. Amazon uh, will let you uh, install a lock that, that they can open and just drop their own parcels in, right? It's the world of retail. You no longer have to be at home. It's pretty much like this in my building anyway. I always walk home and there's like, how do you get in my building? Like, there's like things like resting against my door, right? And then it gets really interesting. Imagine if you ran out of eggs and then there was a knock at the door or that someone just opened the door and put a box of eggs in immediately and then closed the door. <laughs> well, Amazon is using artificial intelligence and a number of different um, mechanisms to do a system for anticipatory package shipping. They'll work out when you run out of something and they'll send it to you immediately or just before you run out. You never have to think about the shopping that you need to do. Scary? Kind of weird? Kind of useful, right? Well, because we're talking about policy, I thought I'd better um, talk about policy a little bit more in the presentation. So this is an additional part of what we're going to talk about here. You know, what about policy and regulation when you've got so many different companies driving technology faster than ever before? How do we as governments and organizations keep up with that? Well, we don't. I gave a presentation last year to all the policymakers in a, in a very large province in, in Canada. And uh, we talked about regulation and policy. And I talked about something that I called predictive government. Now, we know what this is, right? The exponential curve. The idea that the ideas build on top of ideas and it, it drives us up into an exponential growth curve in terms of adoption and sales and more solutions coming out there. This is where government expects progress to be, like on a linear scale. It's like, oh yeah, next year, change will be slight. We're ready for that, right? This is where it actually is. Companies like Uber and Airbnb and whatever, they throw it right up into the exponential curve. And governments are like, what do we do? They have to try and retrofit things, right? These companies will be disruptive at any cost, and I'm going to give you the example of Uber, right? When Uber came out, it was going to disrupt the taxi industry, right? And we understand that, that that's what it's like. So, yeah, here's an app. You can drive your own car, and you can take people from A to B, and we'll do all the management on the platform. Um, you have a great relationship with the person you're driving. They don't have to give you any money. It all gets done through the application. Great. Um, when I go to other cities and I use Uber and then I come back to Vancouver, I feel like I've walked back about 15 years. It's so painful and I wish that the government here would stop uh, sticking their head in the sand and hoping it will go away because it's not. This is a really interesting quote from the CEO of, of Uber. Uh, Cars are to us what books are to Amazon. Amazon just sold books until it came out with the Kindle. And look what Amazon is today, right? This is, what, this is what Uber's doing. It's looking about total, total world domination across a number of different areas. Uber Eats, there's actually Uber Eats already in Vancouver, right? Uber Freight, they want to dominate the freight space, yeah? And they also bought a company called Otto, which turns any, any truck into a self-driving truck. So they want to even remove the cost of humans driving that freight. Self-driving vehicles, they're deploying a lot of these in cities. I think Philadelphia is one of the big locations they're doing tests in, obviously San Francisco. Um, they just signed a huge order, I think, with Volvo because they know that their future isn't going to be you and I driving an Uber. 
is going to be their own fleets making the money automatically and a bunch of people maintaining that fleet. And, uh, yeah, flying cars. That will probably be a reality by 2020, 2021. In fact, they're looking at tests in LA and Dubai. Crazy, huh? Non-stop evolution, and Uber's not going to stop. If you look at other companies that are also exponential, like Airbnb and, and, and people like that, it's all change all the time. It's not the same as it was even last year. Uh, will there be Uber space? I think there will. Right? Why not? Once they start doing commercial uh, sort of um, passenger aircraft up into the atmosphere and back down, yeah, you'll be able to order it on Uber. It might cost you like $100,000. People with special black credit cards will be able to spend that kind of money, right? But what about government? Government sees this and they're shocked. I actually met with, uh, with some of the people that got uh, a whole level of uh, new policy put together in Toronto. They won a bunch of awards for it. Fantastic. They worked with Uber, but they had to work with Uber. They didn't tell Uber how the world was going to be. It was this way of working that was never seen before with technology. So this is from Gartner. This is the hype cycle, right? The technology trigger. trigger here's an idea. The peak of inflated expectations. It's like, oh, Uber's a great idea. No one's really going to use it, though. Trough of disillusionment. System doesn't really work. Slope of enlightenment. Yes, people are picking up. And productivity. Every day, people are using it. We're all using it. So government starts to engage, typically, towards the trough of disillusionment. And then, once it all gets productive, they're like, okay, we need to retrofit a bunch of policies and regulations to that world. And this is where it all falls apart. See what happened in London last summer. Transport for London cancelled the license for Uber. I know they're still in negotiations now. But they didn't have anything that could handle the way that Uber was operating. And Uber didn't care. They were going a million miles an hour, changing the world. So that's a problem, right? And policymakers in government have got a big headache. There was even a situation recently when, when General Motors came out with a new self-driving vehicle that didn't have a steering wheel, it didn't have pedals. There were 16 regulations that it couldn't actually meet because it just didn't even have the mechanisms in the car to meet them. So what happens about self-driving vehicles? Well, you have to go back and you have to clear, clear the way for this new technology to come through. Right? What happens? Lots of meetings and months and months and months and it slows down technology. We shouldn't slow down, down technology. We should be responsible and make sure that it's good for humanity, but really, we need to think about a predictive government model. So you start earlier, and you engage the people that are building the technology and the platforms. And that could be multiple people. You build you know, these, these boards of, of people working in self-driving vehicles, or you know, accommodation, or you know, the future of work, or whatever, automation in HR, whatever. And then you come up with candidate policy and regulations way before you actually hit that point where people start doubting the technology because it's likely the technology is going to make it through. At this point, you have candidate regulations that understand the, what the world could be so you're ready. So that when it gets to the plateau of productivity, you've got best fit policy and regulations that have kind of been tested out a little bit of, over time. It's a pretty wild idea. But I actually really like this because it's quite logical for me. This is how people build software, right? What's it like? Do a proof of concept. Mm. Test a bunch of hypotheses against it. And then once you've proven them out, then, hey, here's the operating manual, right? Government needs to be like that. 
I do think that you can actually have a practical approach to this, and I think what it's about is government solution providers and citizens speaking together, right? Advisory consultation and usage of product. And I think that future studies, what I do, futurology, the idea that you can look into the future and understand where the changes will come and the tensions will be, is an important part of this as well. Because there's not a lot of people that do that. People are good at three to five year projections or, or strategies. They're not very good at 20 year. So I think you're going to see a lot more people like me in government going, going forward. In fact, in Canada, Canada does have a chief futurist. There's a department called Policy Horizons that's full of futurists, and they work at the federal level. They report into, um, they report into a minister in government, and they do some really interesting reports. But at the culmination of all the signals of, signals of change and all the technologies that have come before us, you know, we could ask the question, what about us? We're still the same, right? We're still humans. We're still part, we're still part of the, the overall solution. We're the people that use these things and are impacted by these things. For thousands of years, this is how we've operated. We want certainty and variety, significance. We really need connection and love. We want to grow, and then we want to contribute. And this is how we're going to be for thousands of years into the future. And it's surprising to me when I chat to all of the governments and all the tech companies and consulting companies and small organizations and the tens of thousands of people per year, people come up to me and they say, say that they're surprised that I actually talk about love and wisdom and humanity as being an essential part of the solution because we've forgotten to think about that because people are selling us widgets, we've got to install the widget. We don't think about how we're going to use it, right? And we've got to have responsibility. Great Irish writer, George Bernard Shaw, we're made wise not by the recollection of our past, but, but by the responsibility for our future. Welcome to the future. Thank you very much.